Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Cover Story, a podcast by New Books Network, where we talk with people who write, edit, and publish long-form journalism. And today we're talking with the publisher and co-editor of N Plus One magazine, Mark Krotov. Uh, Mark, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So before we talk about joys and challenges of editing N Plus One, let's start with your own biography. Sure. Uh, I was, yeah, I was born in Russia uh, in the 1980s and uh, came over to the U.S. uh, at age six. And uh, yeah, you know, I have no idea if that, if sort of any of the uh, kind of minor linguistic challenges of that, of that transition had any uh, impact on on my work, but it was good to, uh, you know, it was good to sort of, um, once I got familiarized with with the English language, I really uh, took to it. uh, And I've been a fan of it ever since. and yeah, and so I grew up uh, in Atlanta, uh, and then uh, basically, you know, came to New York for college, and and uh, and and pretty much out of college, uh, started working in book publishing. And I, you know, uh, started as an assistant, like everyone else, and and you know, made copies and did the rest of that stuff, and then gradually, uh, you know, was handed little you know chapters of books to edit here and there, and and really. Um, enjoyed that a lot. That was a truly sort of, um, exciting and transformative experience to just get to, to get to play with people's work. And I, and I, I started with fiction, um, though I've edited sort of, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Um, and, and then, yeah. And so I, I sort of, I worked in publishing for, uh, about eight years at a couple different publishers and then came to N plus one in 2016. That's amazing. Um, and I want to ask you more about publishing and also about editing fiction and, and nonfiction. But uh, I also want to ask you, uh, do you think that the fact that you're essentially bilingual helps or doesn't help in your work as an editor? And I'm thinking, you know, um, you know, I speak Polish and English and sometimes I have a problem uh, with self-editing because, you know, certain things are different, like quotation marks, just different punctuation, stuff like that. And I wonder... Um, how it works for you? <laughs> That's a great question. It's something that I I kind of don't think about very much, except for occasional moments when I think about it very, very intensely. Um, the way it, this is kind of, I don't know if this is a partial answer or, or a definitive answer, but I will say that one big way in which it comes up is I think that I don't have a very good ear for cliche. Um, I think that there are, you know, I'm, I, I you know, I, I really enjoy editing and, and take it seriously and, and, and approach it. You know, I, I really sort of edit pretty intensely, I think, but I sometimes, you know, and plus one, we have a very collaborative approach to editing and we all kind of read one another's edits and, 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 uh, and, and try to be helpful and, and advise, advise one another. Um, but sometimes I will, I don't know, I'll do, I'll, I'll edit a piece and I'll send it to one of my colleagues for a look. And then, and they will inevitably kind of find a couple of just sort of, you know, minor cliches that someone wrote quickly and, and sort of unthinkingly. And for all of my <laughs> various other interventions in this text, it's just like something that I will have missed. Um, mm-hmm. And I never know if that's just because I myself just don't actually have that much of a problem with cliche and it's not the thing I focus on or whether it's actually you know, whether it does have to do with the language barrier a little bit and that that's just where it um, manifests. 
Yeah. Um, for those listeners who are not familiar with N plus one um, and what it is about, uh, on the Wikipedia page, you can find an early definition by Keith Guest and one of the founders that it's like Paris Review, but not dead. What do you think about this definition? And uh, um, after, yeah. Uh, well, that's, uh, you know, we, we, we're, uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very polite. Uh, the Paris Review is not dead, of course. But, um, well, you know, I think that um, certainly at the time that the magazine was founded, uh, there, um, you know, I think that the founding editors, Keith among them, felt very strongly, and I think very correctly, that there was a real, you know, there was a sort of, mo this was in 2004, and there was a moment of real sort of political stasis, if not, if not regression, you know, in terms of national politics, obviously, and foreign policy, but also, uh, you know, even in terms of in terms of sort of on on the left, in some sense, and uh, and then culturally, they felt similar that there was just sort of not um, that the kind of combative energy of of certain sort of eras of of criticism uh, and and reviewing and so on were not kind of at, at the at the fore, and that and that the kind of sort of reviewing combat that was happening, like maybe in the pages of the New Republic or uh, elsewhere, that it was kind of not, but in a way it was this, so, sort of a superficial kind of combat. Um, and so, yes. And so they wanted to create something that was very, very, very much alive, uh, and alive to the moment in politics, you know, alive to sort of contemporary literature, um, and alive to sort of the possibilities of form, uh, that, that kind of, that maybe other places were not as interested in experimenting, uh, with. And, you know, and I and I think that that continues to manifest. One one thing that we we have a kind of, you know, I suppose it's an unwritten rule, but but we are not. It's not like private or anything. But we we have something called um, a no dead people rule, where for you know, with very very minor exceptions, we don't you know we don't publish reviews of like we wouldn't publish like a a review of. Um, you know, of, of Philip, of a Philip Roth novel or even of his work, uh, mm -hmm. now, you know, because he's just not alive. Uh, we might, you know, we might publish something on, you know, the kind of all the controversy and stuff. Um, but, uh, but so that's a way to, you know, obviously many, many great writers and thinkers among the dead, uh, so many great ones. Uh, but, uh, but we really try to, you know, to limit ourselves to kind of to contemporaneity and to say, okay, well, given the choice between maybe relitigating however elegantly something that has been sort of discussed to death or, or trying to contribute something new, we're, we're just like much more interested in the latter. And I, and I think that's really held true um, from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before that uh, you were an avid reader of N plus one yourself before you actually joined them. Um, so do you remember yourself as a reader of N plus one and what uh, got you excited? Maybe you remember some pieces or writers in particular. I'm not sure if that's a fair question yeah, to ask. No, I, no, no, no. Of course. I, um, you know, I, I first encountered the magazine. So it was founded in 2004 and I probably came to it in, uh, in 2006 or, or early 2007. So I, I wish I would had been able to say that I've been reading it from the very beginning. It's not quite true, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but I encountered it in college and, um, and I was just so, you know, essentially the thing that struck me so powerfully was that you could have, 
you could just have culture and politics and literature just in the same sharing space, you know, and and talking to one another. And these things were not segregated. And I think that that uh, I think that that really resonated with me as um, as as a reader. Uh, that's something that I've you know I've always been interested in in political writing in one form or another, and I've always been interested in um, reading about you know in writing about politics. That's kind of not just strictly factual or strictly sort of narrative, though. Of course, those things have their place, but that takes real um, formal risks uh, and that tries to you know that tries to sort of approach politics in a sort of with you know in a, in a really kind of literary sophisticated way but 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 also interested in literature that that doesn't just sort of like leave politics or ideology unstated um that's not to say of course that like all of our fiction is like is screed or manifesto i mean nothing i, I think that's it's quite far from the truth uh and and i think we're you know we're very rigorous about about the fiction that we publish but um but certainly that combination of things was just so bracing. And I remember, yeah, I mean, I remember buying issue five at the great like magazine store on the Upper West Side that is no longer there. It was right on the front table, you know, and next to the neck next to the in the like at the checkout area and and just like holding it in my hand. And it was really exciting. And and that piece has um that piece has a lot of great writing. I mean, that issue has a lot of great writing. Um Keith, who you mentioned, has this this piece about um, about torture and and sort of American foreign policy in that in that in that issue. That's so it's so elusive and so interesting, and and it it kind of like builds by accretion rather than sort of saying things directly or declaratively. And I and I you know I've read that piece so many times over the years, and 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 always have taken away something new from it. And um, and the other thing from that issue that really stood out and, and I think was quite kind of um, was quite fundamental was a, a great piece by the writer Imran Kuvadia, uh, a short story called Dr. Atomic, which is based on um, based on the life of uh, uh, A.Q. Khan, the, the nuclear scientist from Pakistan, who kind of um, in the 90s and the 2000s uh, worked for like various, quote unquote, rogue nations, helping them to develop their nuclear uh, programs. And he, and I think he did, you know, so he worked in with the North Korean government. And so the story basically follows this. I, I don't remember if he was named or not. It might just be, the story's called Dr. Atomic. And, and so, but in any case, it follows him through his time in Pyongyang um, as he's just sort of navigating the city and, and sharing his expertise. And I just thought that, I mean, what an, I just thought it was such an amazing topic for yeah. a short story. You know, it's very ripped from the headlines, of course, but it, but it's so, uh, so subtle and uh, so unusual in its in its construction and in, in its approach that it doesn't feel it just it just has this kind of real mystical quality almost. Um, sounds amazing. And um, um, so at the moment you do most of the assigning, you manage writers and content pretty much. And how does that work? Uh, so uh, what does it take to put an issue? together uh how do you guys pick a pick a theme and the title and how much time does it take if you could tell us a bit about your work as an editor sure uh yeah so the magazine comes out three times a year uh and you know usually we start with um with uh submissions 
sort of meeting in which all the editors in, on the editorial board um, bring in uh, pieces that they're interested in and having considered for the magazine. Um, and, uh, you know, that can be fiction, it can be nonfiction, it can be criticism, it can be, you know, it, it, it can be sort of more straightforwardly political writing. Uh, it can be by them, it can be by other people, but basically it's stuff that they will have sort of solicited and developed for the previous, for the preceding, you know, four months or possibly longer, sometimes much, much longer. Um, you know, sometimes our pieces are like kind of in quote unquote gestation for, for years. Um, and, and then we all, everybody reads everything. And then we have a meeting, uh, where we sort of take the temperature and, and talk through the pieces and sort of figure out, um, who, who like who likes what? Who doesn't like what? What? And 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 I the goal is not so much to leave the meeting with with a firm uh, sense of what is going in the issue, so much as to really sort of talk through potential challenges to pieces, um, to talk through what to sort of gauge what is really exciting and what's motivating, and then also you know sometimes stuff just won't really you know rise to the level of conversation at all, and that kind of tells us something too. And so then at that point. Um, uh, the the co-editors, which at the which at the moment you know it, it kind of it changes, uh, but at the moment that's me and, and my colleague Dana Tortorici. We we go off and uh, and sort of like put, figure out the table of contents, and uh, and then at that point you know there's like another few rounds of editing that happen, uh, and and then it's you know it's fairly straightforward. Things get fact checked, things go into copy editing, things get proofread, things you know, and so on, um, and. But, you know, but we, N plus one is all, you know, one of the other things that struck me when I, and I, I don't know that I could have articulated this, you know, when I was uh, not like 19 years old or whatever, 21 years old, mm-hmm. I'm sure I couldn't have, was that it's a, you know, it, at the, it was obviously at the time just an extraordinarily well-edited magazine. And I'm not saying that, I, I'm allowed to say that because I was not involved mm-hmm. with it at the time. So I was just, just speaking as a reader, you know, it really struck me that the, um, that it just had a real voice and a real sensibility. And so we, and so, yeah, so, you know, that's the big thing is we really take editing very seriously. I, I believe that editing is, um, you know, it's not, it's not like a self-involved belief. It's not, it's not as important as the writing or whatever. And, 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 and I think the kind of power, the sort of like the power relationship between author and editor, I think is in fact um, something that I really take seriously and that we all take seriously, which is to say that, you know, we believe in like, and the author having, you know, the say and really being a part of the process. But at the same time, um, the best pieces tend to be the, or many of the best pieces, let's say. Sometimes there's, there's all kinds, but some of the stuff that I like, I really enjoy working on is, is, is stuff that has emerged from conversation between author and editor over months or years, you know, that doesn't mm-hmm. kind of just, sometimes something incredible can develop in a vacuum and we and we have a number of writers who really just kind of go off do their thing present something and it's incredible but but other kinds of writing i think really benefit from um editorial involvement very early on even before they're strictly speaking anything to edit you know and um and so that's what we and we sort of take that as a that's key to our to our vision of how of 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 the kind of writing that we want to publish Mm-hmm. But then on the top of that, you also have a, a growing um, content that is present only on the web, right? So how, how does that content place, uh, uh, you know, with the themed issues, you know? Um, 
Yeah. Well, um, yes. I mean, I think so. Basically, the you know, I think the 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 main sort of there's like just a process difference, which is that um, the print, you know, every all the print pieces are are kind of go through. Um, you know, they're read by everyone on Edboard and they're sort of discussed collectively and, and, and it, and decided and to certain, to a certain extent, you know, people weigh in and, um, and then they take a long time to come out, you know, cause the magazine only comes out three times a year. Um, web, the web is, it's a little more, you know, it's obviously more immediate. We can run more topical stuff. Um, and also we have a kind of a setup where pieces that go on the web don't, like they don't have to go through that whole ed board process. So, you know, you, we kind of, you, as long as there's like two editors um, in the editorial board who feel that a piece is interesting and worth publishing and ready to publish, then that's fine. You know, and that's a way for us to mm-hmm. kind of not, it's a way for us to be responsive and for us to also publish work that's still, um, I mean, you know, there's stuff on the website that I think is everything is every bit as good as what's in the print. I don't think it's a, you know, I don't think it's sort of a qualitative distinction per se, but sometimes you want something out very soon, you know, very quickly. Um, sometimes something is formally super interesting, really ambitious, something we want to commit to, but maybe not quite right for the magazine. And, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's too long. Uh, maybe just stylistically, it's kind of a, a little bit at odds with the, with the tone of the magazine, but still something we really want to pursue. Um, and, and other times, you know, it might just be, it's also like, it's a great way to, you know, for us to kind of also work with emerging writers as well, you know, because I think you don't have to, there's like, I I don't want to say that, that there's not, there's sort of less polish on the web because that's certainly not always the case, but it is the case that, you know, we, we might just be, especially in the interest of topicality or something, um, we, we, we might very well say, okay, well, this this piece is still you know if we were to if we were to have this in print we might want to kind of really you know uh, you know do, take sand off the edges a little bit not in kind of in a political sense but in a sort of literary sense but but let but know this thing exists as it is and we like it and we want it to respond to the moment now um, so that's kind of how the you know it, it's a bit of a it, it's sort of a distinction in that sense but but certainly everyone on Edboard is encouraged to and does kind of bring pieces in for both, uh, for both, uh, you know, channels. Mm-hmm. And you yourself, uh, two recent pieces that you penned were published, um, uh, uh, not under your name, but, uh, as the editors in the section that you guys called intellectual situation, right? And, uh, the most recent of them was the consequences of deferred maintenance. Um, and I was wondering, um, uh, the voice of the of this piece and other pieces uh, is very distinct. Uh, so I wonder how those the editor's pieces are being born. Uh, being born. I'm sorry. Uh, you guys have a meeting uh, and uh, you know and come up uh, uh, and you come to certain agreement uh, and then this voice represents you all. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's really different every time. Um, the the, yeah, the intellectual situation, with, with, with some exceptions, uh, it's generally unsigned. Sometimes it's written by one editor. Sometimes it's written by two editors. Sometimes it's truly like highly collaborative, where there's a giant email thread and everyone sort of writes in, and then someone 
takes on the responsibility of, uh, you know, of sort of stitching the thing together. My colleague, Rachel Ossip, who's, who's our managing editor and, and a, you know, a really brilliant editor on, in her own right, uh, is just like, she's a real, um, she can just, she's, among other kinds of editing, she's extremely good at doing the stitching work where she can kind of see all the constituent parts and, and, and then sort of patch them together. And then that gives us like um, a sense of that. That's maybe not a full fine finished draft, but, but it's something that has the right shape. Um, so yeah, that's really to say that like, there's no hard and fast way to do it. Um, obviously in a perfect world, you know, and I, I, I mean, I mean this seriously in a perfect world, like the, the intellectual situation would truly be written collectively because, you know, because we we want the, the Edwards voice sort of represented democratically in practice. Um, you know, in practice, that sometimes that does work. And then at other times, you know, conversations are happening and then, you know, one or one or a few editors go off and write the thing and then kind of present an unfinished version to the Ed board. Uh, and then that gets discussed uh, and then sort of changes are integrated, uh, you know, or edits are made, feedback is received, criticism is accepted and so on. Um, And yeah, you know, and and it's interesting because like, if you look at the kind of the intellectual situation that that opening sort of quote unquote op-ed throughout the history of the magazine, it's really, it's evolved in a lot of different directions. It used to be, you know, in the past and the early issues, they were, the intellectual situation uh, section was like, it was really short, you know, and there'd be like three or four or five different short essays that would constitute the whole. uh, And then periodically you'd have longer single pieces that, you know, sometimes there's two of them in recent, you know, in issue 37, which we published last summer uh, or late last spring, which came out um, essentially was our an issue that we'd mostly finished working on when COVID um, you know, when the, when the lockdown started. And then, of course, we, we, the issue was not done then at that point. And so we really kind of had to rethink it and, and, and ended up publishing a lot more stuff in it than we would have um, before. And, but that's a piece, that's an, I, you know, that's a, a, an, an issue where the intellectual situation has uh, four distinct signed pieces, you know. Um, so it really, it changes. You know, I, I think we would all like to, publish like shorter uh versions of this thing because you know because it's like a lot of work and a lot of time and we always want to do more funny stuff uh you know on the whole we've been pretty serious um recently though i think in the in issue 36 the 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 one about publishing has some kind of stupid mm-hmm. jokes in it which is great <laughs> um we do you know we we it, we do want stuff to be funny i, I i've had a, i haven't really emphasize that but i think we really actually appreciate um we appreciate that it's a very serious looking magazine with like serious looking covers and 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 so forth and i and i love that seriousness and i'm committed to it but at the same time um humor in that context can really do a lot of work and and some of my favorite m plus one you know contributors are also the the funniest um, okay, so staying for a bit in a, a publishing world, do you think that this is a coincidence that right now you are doing the magazine or you think that you're consciously left the world of book publishing? Your your piece about publishing was pretty bitter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it was a bitter. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess it was probably bitter. I'm actually not, I'm not that 
I, I would I think of myself with relationship to with relation to book publishing, I don't think of myself as bitter, but I do think of myself as kind of like a you know, a, like a critic from within in a sense. I don't um I I uh yeah, this is a great that's a great question. I mean, I think that well, first of all, I should say that N plus one, in addition to the magazine and the website, um, we also publish books um periodically. And so mm-hmm. that in, initially when I was brought in, that was kind of one of the one of the things that I was um, tasked with overseeing. And, and, and so we've done, we published some great books, which we can talk about later or, or well, we don't mm-hmm. have to. Um, but, but in any case, but yeah, I mean, I, I think now certainly more, more of my work is on the magazine just cause like the, the book product projects kind of are, they, they, they come and go, but it's not, it couldn't be a full-time concern for us. Um, I, what, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that book publishing, no, I mean, it's an important, it's a crucial industry. It has so much to offer. I think that it's certainly being at a magazine and especially being at this magazine is, um, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's more fun. Uh, you know, you don't have to spend like many, many years working on something. The return, the gratification is a lot more immediate because you just publish something and you see it reach readers. Um, you don't, you know, books, the problem with, with book publishing in a way is that, um, or with, you know, with at least the kind of area, the part of book publishing that I've spent, um, most of my working life in is that, um, you know, books are very, every book is different and every book kind of has a different audience and, and there's a lot of overlap for sure, but it's, you, you really to do book publishing really well, in a sense, you have to do a bit of reinventing the wheel every single time. And nobody has the capacity to do that. You know, no, there's no publisher that can really that can really devote. I mean, with a couple of exceptions, but even there, you know, I think it's just so you have to do not only do you have to get the editing right and you have to, you know, find the great books and cultivate the writers, you then have to put an enormous amount of effort into help, you know, into getting these books attention and helping them find readers. Whereas like every development in, in kind of culture and technology over the past, you know, decade or 15 years has, has in a sense militated against that, you know, um, you know, begin with the, with the rise of Amazon being a kind of central, um, central element of that, but, but by no means is that the only thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I, I'm definitely, I, I, I find magazine work extremely rewarding and, and exciting. And I think it's a great way to, um, it's, a, it's a, in a sense, you know, it's, it's easier to find new writers and young writers and exciting writers and, and kind of, and, and writers from, from underrepresented or just interesting or backgrounds or both who, um, who will write an article, it's like, that's a a much easier ask than trying to get them to write a book, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But that being said, I I believe that we are, you know, part of a shared ecosystem and and nothing is more exciting to us than when our writers go on to write books that either sort of expand or elaborate on the pieces they've written for us or, or just simply are totally different. But, but in one way or another, we helped them take kind of the next step. And we are like, you know, we are very enthusiastic about promoting those books, even if they're not books that we've published ourselves. And, and so, and of course, you know, everybody reads constantly. So, um, yeah. And I, and I, so anyway, sorry, that's a very long answer. I think that my, I guess my, my, my final kind of 
in a sense, I, I think that the kind of the problems with book publishing are, you know, it's it's just they're they're just serious structural problems, and and I I do wish that and that and, and you know the 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 piece in issue thirty six, I think, to the extent that it's bitter, it's bitter about the fact that, um, the people at the sort of at the top tier of these companies, the people who make the most money and who run them, feel to me maybe with one exception, feel quite, um, I don't know that they have a kind of long-term vision uh, for the sustainability of the industry. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, over the past decade, when, when, it, when Amazon, well, let's say 15 years, you know, when Amazon went from like a very significant retailer to being, in some cases, near monopolistic, as a retailer and then went from, you know, a physical retailer to, to, you know, to being, to having the Kindle, which is, um, which is totally, you know, which is dominant in a way that, that in fact, like, I think is, is hard to grasp, even though so many people own this thing and, and read on it. Um, that was a time for, um, I think for, you know, for, for CEOs and executives and publishing to be, to take very, very seriously, um, like to take, to take, Amazon seriously as a, as an enemy, um, rather than as like, um, a force to be placated. And I just think that for the most part that has not happened. And so now, you know, now we're really in the position where we are, um, where despite some like incredible, you know, work in independent bookstores and certain online retailers and or so on, you know, the, the book publishing and, and sort of, and readers are in large part enthralled to one company and uh and that's a real problem um definitely there is actually a a book that i want to talk about um uh, by n plus one and that would be mfa versus new york city the book that i really really loved uh and uh read a few times and it was it read really uh fresh so when you were talking about uh publishing i thought that you guys uh, back then, at least, found found this really successful formula uh, to you know, uh, you know, uh, publish a fresh a fresh book. I don't know if that was before your time or were you involved in the project. And also, I was wondering, um, what would you what makes you guys decide that uh, you guys have in hand an idea that potentially deserves to be changed into a book? published by n plus one that's a great question um yeah i I, so i was i unfortunately there's not i was not around then uh and and i love that book and think it's kind of a model of of the kind of work that we the kind of books that we can publish and do publish and should publish more of i think it's just really um yeah it's just a really kind of exciting and and sort of interesting intervention and and it you know it it found all kinds of readers right because uh because in fact people you know, to the extent that the sort of MFA versus NYC uh, distinction is a strict one, it really found readers on both sides of that. Um, I love, there's nothing kind of I love more than um, than going to sort of fairs and conferences and tabling with, you know, for M plus one, literally just standing behind the table trying to make deals like a used car salesman. Uh, you know, that's uh, during uh, during the COVID era, of course, that has not been possible. Um, but when we, when I've gone to the, um, you know, to the AWP conference, which is kind of the big like hub of the MFAs. Um, 
you know, that's like definitely a book that resonates, even though, um, and, and people are very interested in it. And so in any case, uh, an amazing book that I think kind of does, has a great combination of sort of literary sophistication and, and sort of sort of serious sociology and, and yes. sort of interestingly turns, you know, and like turns kind of readers and readership and, and, the, and the market sort of back in on the readers and, uh, and makes them feel sort of part of and implicated in, in, in a series of structures and systems and like what, you know, what more could you ask for in a way? Um, the, but, but sort of to answer, yeah, to answer the second question, there's not like a strict formula, uh, for when something kind of quote unquote rises to like, you know, might like rise to the level of a book. And, uh, but it, you know, the past few books that we've done, um, have been, and have been sort of single author books. So uh, we in 2017 we we were working with with a with a, a writer who's also you know an, an artist and a journalist, and she does she kind of does graphic reportage. So she, you know, she's just an amazing. She just draws these incredible incredible images of of uh, mostly of kind of scenes of sites of protest in uh, in the former Soviet Union, um, but also you know is kind of does really serious investigate, you know, kind of like journalism. She goes out and, and talks to people and, 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 uh, and instead of, I mean, she writes stuff down, but mostly she just has these amazing pictures. And so that was somebody that we'd published in the magazine, but of course we're like, uh, we, you know, we, we have, this has to be a book. And so that kind of happened that way. Uh, and we've since published her work. This is Victoria Lamasco, the author of Other Russias. We've published her mm-hmm. numerous times, including in the most recent issue in 39, yes. where she has a great dispatch on um, on the uprising Minsk. in Belarus. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then and then in 2018, we published a, a, a book by our, uh, a collection of, of, of film writing by our longtime film critic, A.S. Hamra, who uh, he, he's, he's currently at The Baffler, but he'd, he'd written for us for many, many years. And, uh, you know, and is, is my, I mean, he's, I, I, I try to be, uh, I try to kind of, I'll, I'm trying to keep hyperbole in this conversation to a minimum, but I'll say that he's the best film critic, uh, in the English speaking world, uh, and wow. is, you know, and is a genius. And, uh, and so we were like, well, this seems he'd, he'd been writing for us for a long time, but then he also had, he'd been writing for other places for, for, for even longer. And we sort of felt, well, okay, we, you know, this is a person who, we and a lot of readers, our readers take very, very seriously, but can we, in a sense, can we make them take him even more seriously and, and kind of really just, uh, can we make the kind of the, the essay collection, the collection of cr- criticism become a kind of an event, you know? And, and so that's exactly what we did and what happened. And that book, um, the earth dies streaming, um, has been really successful and, and, uh, and, you know, and we're just, we're just about to reprint it again. And, and Hamra, you know, as a result, you know, partly as a result of just that, that book has gone on to sort of, you know, just write even more and, 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 and is somehow getting even better. And, um, and his stature has certainly grown and, and his profile has grown and, and, uh, you know, and that's a great case where that was just not, that was a, certainly an editorial decision, but it was an editorial decision in a kind of larger sense where you kind of said, okay, well, we know this thing is great. We this thing already exists. All those all the pieces in the book, except for the introduction, had already been published. Mm-hmm. But but the the fact of kind of arranging them in a certain way and 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 you know put making a book out of them and and giving it you know this an incredible cover uh, again by by Rachel Ossip, who I mentioned um, 
and by giving it this great title that that um, Hamra came up with, um, we can uh, you know we can really turn it into something special, something that that if it only existed in the magazine would actually not quite rise to the level of this level of attention, you know, because like the magazine for all of its visibility and and for all of its readers, it, it doesn't people like, it doesn't an issue of the magazine doesn't really have like a publicity cycle, you mm-hmm. know, whereas a book really does. And, um, you know, people get interviewed when they uh, publish a book and, and they get reviewed of course. And, and so, and anyway, so that was so fun to take advantage of and, and, uh, of that, of that kind of reality. And, and, um, and it's really one of the great, one of the things I'm most proud of uh, in my in my whole professional life is 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 helping get that that book together and getting it out. Um, in your piece on publishing, you are mentioning uh, the growing role of audio in uh, uh, book publishing, and I was wondering what audio does to long form journalism. I can see that N Plus One avoided the trend of having a podcast, which is probably uh, great. Uh, I was wondering what you think about um, um, audio uh, in. Uh, you know, in the world of magazines? And uh, do you think it's gonna uh, take away all the readership? Yeah, any thoughts? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we actually did, we did have a podcast for a while that was really fun. Mm. It was run by our, um, by some of our interns and former interns. It was, and I think they did awesome work. And then like, you know, like any reasonable person, they they got jobs that were more real than the M plus one <laughs> podcast. And uh and so, you know, we've kind of been trying to relaunch it ever since, but it's it's somehow never quite, um, never quite converge on something, you know, because like, of course, one wants it to be good and not, and it, I mean, it was good, but like one would really have to start over and, and make it pretty sophisticated and so on. So it's tricky. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have actually that many informed thoughts on, on you know, on one hand, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, obviously there's like audio? an incredible. Do I? Uh, uh, yeah, but it's mostly like it's it's kind of sad. My my audio listenership is, is is pretty it's pretty lowbrow. You know, like I don't I don't listen to like I read reporting, of course, but I don't know that I've listened to like a, um you know a kind of serious like reported podcast um, in a long time, and that's not it, some to some extent it's just because i um when i'm not reading for work and when i'm not editing i kind of just want to consume and and but also when i'm like i don't know doing the dishes uh i want to sort of consume slightly more uh stupid stuff so maybe that's that's part of it i mean i will say that and i kind of i'm this is like you know you should treat this as a pretty uninformed judgment i i do think that um the thing with like s- certain certain kinds of certain varieties of long form journalism is that I think there's like a kind of danger of like of a certain kind of fetishism where, uh, you know, where you have a good story, but then there's like all this kind of set dressing around it, you know, where like and 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 that can mean that like the reporting is very much in the first person. Uh, it can mean that there's kind of just like big set pieces and so on. But I'm, you know, I'm very, um, I love flourishes, you know, but I would, I prefer for flourishes to kind of exist in, um, like in fiction or in, in sort of more essayistic nonfiction. Whereas like I see report, you know, to me reporting at its, at its 
peak is is kind of stuff like you know is really just frankly stuff in the new yorker where the the writers for all their kind of audacity and and success as reporters really do get out of the way for the most part and it's really hard to get out of the way in an audio medium because like because your voice is the thing you know and so I don't know. I mean, that, but that's a kind of very tentative answer because I don't actually have mm-hmm. very strong feelings about this. I mean, what, you know, obviously one thing is that, of course, like it is amazing to, um, you know, to hear from people and, and to hear sort of voices that are not, um, that just like otherwise don't quite like, you know, li- live on the page in the same way. And so I, I do find, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I listened to a couple of seasons of, of, um, of, uh, so the slow burn when it launched, mm-hmm, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, Leon, when it was still, when, when Leon Nafok was still doing it and, um, you know, and, and, and the stuff that stayed with me from that, and I thought that was pr- awesome, but, um, but the stuff that really stayed with me about that, it, uh, you know, from, from those, uh, from those podcasts was just like getting to listen to Leon's interview with Linda Tripp, you know, and, and like actually listening to, some of the public or semi-public or in fact, like not at all public figures themselves. I mean, I think that those getting that kind of texture was extremely valuable. And, um, cause otherwise like, you know, re-reporting the impeach, the Clinton impeachment in a sense is like, that's, that's not, one wouldn't kind of do that without, without the sort of added, uh, capacity of actually letting these voices speak. Um, so, so, you know, so I think that's, that's great. Um, but I am, but yes, but most of the time, I shouldn't say they're stupid because they're very, you know, sometimes they can be interesting, but I, you know, I listen to kind of like pretty amateurish movie podcasts, you know, where people just talk about movies and, and, and I use that mostly as like a way to write down stuff that I want to watch, um, mm-hmm. at some point it's, I, I'm pretty like, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty exploitative in a sense, right? <laughs> The, the, the quality of the conversation in a way l- interests me less than like what I can draw from it. So I would like to ask you uh, if, uh, if you're using different tools uh, to edit fiction ver- versus nonfiction. I was just wondering if it, uh, if it feels different to an editor uh, to work with fiction or not, you know? No, I mean, I, you know, when I started out, um, in, when I was in book publishing, I, I have this like very clear memory of the first, like when my boss uh, gave me three chapters of a novel that, that she was working on to edit. I think the first three, yeah, the first three chapters. And, and, you know, and I printed them out and then sat in like a Starbucks or something on like a rainy evening, just sitting there editing these chapters, you know, with a, with a pen. And that was just like, really like, few high points, few, few moments in my career have matched how exciting and sort of really just liberating that felt. Um, that I bring that up only to say that like, you know, for, I would say that for the most part, I think I was working at like with pen and paper, um, like at that time. I mean, I was definitely using track changes for things, but I don't think, I don't think that really Chain. I, I think I was mostly paper, but now, but I now, you know, it kind of sucks. But I, I can't tell you the last time that I edited fiction or nonfiction on paper. Um, oh. And partly it's because I am like, you know, I, I don't know. Well, now we also like didn't have a printer. Now, now my wife and I have a printer, so maybe I can do that again for fiction. 
I would feel I don't really have different approaches to, to fiction and nonfiction or, or different technologies or whatever. I suppose that I it would be easier to edit fiction on paper because like, um, you know, those edits tend to be less interventionist or, or rather they can be interventionist, but I'm not like moving huge chunks of text around for the most part in fiction. Whereas in nonfiction, you know, I actually find track change. I know that like track changes is like a pretty traumatic um, medium for writers and I am sensitive to that. And so I always have like some caveats when I email edits to writers, uh, which, you know, and, and like, and sometimes I'm, I, you know, I say like, actually, it's better to just read this without the changes first. Um, but I'm very attached to track changes. At the same time, some of my colleagues do this great thing where they kind of don't, where they don't really. Um, and I think this maybe was Nikhil, our former editor, Nikhil Saval, who's now a state senator in, in, in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, so he maybe he uh, still does stuff this way and, uh, you know, in the in the state house. Um, but he, uh, I think he would kind of mostly edit in bold. And so he would just kind of cut chunks, but you wouldn't necessarily see the cuts. And then you would see his kind of like interested new writing in bold. Mm. Uh, and then he would ask questions in bold and brackets. That's a pretty smart approach. Um, or I mean, it's, you know, it's great. I sometimes from my, from my perspective, it's helpful for me to like, as an editor to see the, see my cuts, uh, and yeah, but I don't know. I mean, but so yeah, I have no, I'm really like technologically, you know, some of my colleagues use Google Drive or, you know, Google Docs. I, I really don't like that so much uh, and find it pretty frustrating. Um, but sorry, this is like very, uh, no, this is very in fine. the weeds, but you are making me realize that, um, that I should, that the next time I'm editing fiction, I should probably, you know, give the printer a try because that's really it, I mean, that's a much, it's a much nicer feeling, of course, to be, to be doing that than to be, just be looking at your screen the same way that you are otherwise anyway. Uh, N plus one is a nonprofit that also relies on subscriptions, correct? And uh, how are you yes. guys doing these years uh, after two recent disasters? I mean, Trump and the pandemic. Uh, was it good for, <laughs> is, for example, was the experience of uh, uh, of the pandemic, uh, was it good for readership of N plus one? And when I mentioned Trump, of course, I meant that after, during his presidency, a lot of magazines uh, experience, uh, you know, um, a surge of new readers. Uh, so, uh, whatever you can tell us about the experience of recent years for N plus one. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's been very steady. We, we have not, we did, I don't think we quite, we definitely experienced like a, a bump in subscriptions after the, you know, the 2016 election in the way that lots of, um, lots of publications did. I don't think ours was kind of as extreme as in some places, partly because we were not, you know, I mean, we just weren't. Like, obviously, we we responded to events in, I think, a really great and, and lucid way. And, and, and some of our best writing is from that, you know, from that period. Um, and, and I think we got over the shock pretty quickly and just sort of went to work. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, we weren't like, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say that we like leaned into sort of the resistance or whatever, um, while also obviously kind of opposing you know, opposing Trump and Trumpism very vigorously. And so, um, so yeah, so I think that that it was a bump, but it wasn't like, we didn't like double our readership or anything. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then in the pandemic, certainly, especially, um, I'm extremely proud of what, you know, my colleagues and I 
managed to pull off kind of in the first few months of the pandemic. Um, um, our web editor at the time, Marco Roth, was really sort of overseeing this this effort. And we we just published a lot of really, really good lasting writing on the pandemic really, really quickly. Um, and in fact, um, sort of in the, so that was like kind of in the first couple, yeah, in the first couple months, like between, you know, March, uh, March, April, May. And then we, along, we, we partnered with Verso Books um, to turn a lot of that writing and then a lot of the great stuff that Verso had published on their website as well. Uh, into a into an ebook called There Is No Outside, um, which is available from us or from Verso. Uh, you know, it's like a couple bucks, and and that I was really uh, I was yeah I was really happy with that with how that came together too. You know, and especially looking back over some of those pieces now, a year later, it's kind of just I mean, everybody was in shock, but it's kind of awesome how quickly our writers were thinking, how well they were writing, how. Um, how sort of diligently our editors responded and stepped up. And, um, and, and, and if you look at that collection that there is no outside, it's kind of what's striking, I think, is that, and if you look from, at our website from that time, um, yeah, what's really impressive is that it's just such a range of, 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 of kinds of writing. You know, we had more personal stuff. Um, we had really sort of pretty, high-level political analysis. We had pretty urgent sort of dispatches from, uh, you know, from people really heavily implicated and affected by, by the pandemic. Um, and, and I just, I mean, I think that kind of range of diversity really speaks to, you know, it speaks to our sensibility that we're, we're, we're always hoping to approach contemporaneity in, in, in a lot of different ways simultaneously. Um, okay, so um, what's coming up? Uh, are you guys working on the spring issue? And also, could you tell us about N Plus One Writers Award? Oh, yes, of course. Um, we Yes, we're working on the spring issue. We're getting pretty close. Uh, and uh, there's going to be, that's going to be, that's an issue I'm very, very, very excited about and proud of. Um, I don't know that, gosh, I spoil, I guess I can't, yeah. Well, not that like, you know, there's like, People are just waiting with bated breath or whatever. But I, I mean, I will say that one piece, that piece that's going to be in it um, is a piece that we just published on the website, uh, you know, just a week ago um, by Toby Hazlitt, um, his his really magisterial essay on, um, you know, on last summer's uprising kind of a year later uh, and and his his effort to sort of re re-narrate that story, which has been for various kind of active and passive reasons, I think suppressed a little bit in the memory, but also to sort of, to think through um, what its implica- implications and possibilities are um, going forward. Um, and, and that piece was like a, you know, that was, uh, you know, we published that on a Friday and, and, and it's just people were reading it really actively over the weekend and have been reading it since. Uh, and I think it was a very, very, very popular piece. And, and, and I'm so thrilled by that. Um, partly because I think Toby Hazlitt is really, he's one of just, he's really one of the great, um, writers of, of our time. I, I'm so again, that's my second hyperbole of the, of the podcast. So forgive me, but it's really true. Um, and he, and this piece is, you know, it's really long. It, it's got, 
it, it covers so much ground. It, it has, you know, it has like phenomenal uh, personal observation of, of, of the riots. It also has really serious analysis. Um, it, you know, it, it, it covers, it of course covers economics and it, it covers, um, you know, a lot of the kind of anti-carceral intellectual work that, that has been done to sort of bring some of these conditions about, um, and it's also sort of internationalist at, at its, in its final, um, in its final pages. And, and, uh, anyway, and, and just, just in a, I mean, just in a remarkable essay. Um, and so to have, to see the incredible readership that showed up for it, the people that responded to it so strongly, um, that was just so encouraging, you know, nothing, nothing is more exciting, uh, than to have, <laughs> you know, than to have like thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of readers read a 10,000 word piece that um, is not self-evident. You know, it's not a take. Uh, it's not. Um, it, it, it's just something truly unique. Um, so anyway, so that's going to be in the issue. Um, we're going to, you know, sometimes stuff that uh, for the most part, things that are in print, you know, do not have not appeared on the web before. But 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 there are always exceptions and and this is like a kind of self-evident one to make. Okay. And maybe just a couple of sentences about the N plus one writers award. Yes. Thank you for, yes. So I'm, we're, we're all really excited about that as well. We, um, so typically um, in, in kind of in non uh, you know, in a non pandemic context, <laughs> we have a, an annual fundraiser. Um, as you said, um, we rely heavily on subscriptions subscriptions are the most important like like just subscriptions are what keep us sustainable ultimately and and uh whenever and that's like the most important thing that anyone can do to support us is just to subscribe it it really means a lot um but we also of course try to you know like every nonprofit we um apply for grants and we raise money from donors and so every year we in normal years we have a, a fundraiser where we um, where we raise money and then we give out something called the N plus one writers fellowship, which is basically a, a $5,000 prize with no strings attached at all, um, to someone who has contributed to the magazine, you know, over a number of years and who we think really kind of is just an essential contributor in one way or another. Um, and, you know, and the winners of that award have been, um, it, it, it really kind of runs the gamut, um, you know, uh, like one year, Bella Shayevich, the great translator and, and writer, uh, won that award. And, and she hadn't actually technically written very much for us, but she'd translated so much. She'd been, she'd been so key to the magazine in so many different ways um, and had edited so many pieces and brought in so much work, including Victoria Lamasco's book. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's contributions like that. Sometimes it's people who have just written a lot and who've who we think are really key. And so this year's winner is, um, is, is Christina Nichol, who's just an absolutely exceptional novelist and essayist, um, who, um, has, I, and, and someone who I've worked with now for almost a decade because I mm. published her novel many years ago. Um, yeah. uh, and, and so we've had a, you know, we've kind of had a relationship since, since, uh, yeah, since like 2012, I think, um, that's when we first, you know, that when I first read the book and, and, um, and, and so I, when, and, and I was very, once I started at M plus one, I was very, very excited to get her into the magazine. And so she's, she's published three really big essays for us, um, that are just so strange and so funny and just so, um, 
you know, she's just an explorer in a sense. And, and she, and, and she, you just never know where she's going or what she's going to do next. And she has such a, um, anyway, I mean, she's just amazing. So I'm very, very happy to, <laughs> that we're giving her the, the, the fellowship prize. And then, um, the other award. So yes. So because we don't have this, um, you know, because, because we can't have a gala, we're doing this thing over zoom where we just give out yeah. the award portion. But um, but then kind of the slightly sadder, but but still exciting part of this is that um, one of our uh, really, really essential contributors, um, some somebody who we published, uh, who, who, you know, who we published his story um, in issue 31, which that was actually also first issue Christina's work appeared in. And um, and he went, you know, that really helped launch his career. Um, this this is the writer, Anthony Viasna. So who was just a, just a, like a, I mean, really kind of a once in a generation, uh, fiction writer, uh, and also essayist. And he, uh, he died, uh, late last year in December. Um, and we, you know, he was 28, so young, um, his short story collection, he had just finished, I think, basically looking over the proofs for it. And that collection is coming out in August from Echo Press. And, um, and, you know, he was just like, not just by us, he was widely seen as this, like, as a kind of major new voice, you know, and, um, and so everyone in the magazine was so fond of him. He, you know, he was friends with all the editors, he was friends with the interns, he was just the most charming and, and, uh, and warm and creative person, um, while also just like, you know, writing work at this, like, this incredible caliber. So we published two stories by him and two and, and two essays. And, and in any case, so we kind of felt that um, there was no way to like, in a way there was like no way to do, to honor him without, unless it was in some way that like would keep honoring him. And so we mm-hmm. came up with this fiction prize named in his honor, the Anthony Viasna so fiction prize. And so that's just a, that's a prize that's, that we're going to give out every year. And so, which means that every year we'll get to say his name and, 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 um, and really acknowledge his contributions. And, um, and so the winner of that prize is, um, is a really great, uh, the inaugural winner is a really great, um, short story writer named Trevor Shikaze, uh, who's, who's in Vancouver, um, who has published two very long, really kind of batshit stories with us, uh, that are sort of dystopian and, uh, just totally, uh, you know, the, I, it's so funny because dystopia usually sort of implies uh, like a certain amount of heaviness and doom and gloom. And it's not that that's absent from these stories, but they're also just so wacky. Uh, and they're kind of, they're, they're sort of, their situations are at once so ridiculous and so kind of grounded. Um, it's like, I don't know, it's like slacker dystopia is maybe the best way that I would describe it. And um, and so he's just, you know, he's amazing. And, and, and I don't think anybody else would have published <laughs> you know, like two 10,000 word short stories. Um, maybe they would have, but, but in any case, we're proud, we're really proud and honored to have done it. So, um, so yeah. that, so he's the recipient. And so, yeah, so we're going to do a, a thing on, on May 26th on zoom where we'll, we'll honor both Christina and Trevor. And we'll also have a little, you know, a little time where we talk about Anthony and, uh, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I'm sure everyone wants to get off zoom. I know I do, but I also think this will just be a really, I just think this will be really lovely, actually, and, yeah. and I'm excited to, to 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 share it with our readers. A lot of things to check out, it seems, and a lot of things coming. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with 
everything. And yeah, today we were talking with the publisher and co-editor of N Plus One, Mark Kroto. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you.